Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Park Street Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Pennington, and today we're talking all things acquisitions and investments. My guest is Jared Poe, the general manager for Sweetens Cove, an ultra-premium Tennessee whiskey founded by a group of friends that just so happens to include sports legends Andy Roddick and Peyton Manning, among others. Jared is a hands-on leader with extensive M&A and general management experience, having successfully executed new ventures, turnarounds, and exit engagements within the wine and spirit space. Today, we're going to talk about the different forms of investments, what changed in mergers and acquisition strategy since he started, and the stages a brand typically goes through before being acquired. So thanks for joining us, and I hope you learned something interesting. All right. Hey, Jared. Welcome to the Park Street Insider Podcast. Thank you, Emily. I appreciate it. How are you doing on this fine, almost spring day? Almost spring. My allergies <laughs> are starting to kick in now, so I know it's spring. Uh, but uh, I always like it when the uh, clocks get uh, you know pushed forward. Uh, it's always better when it's lighter out later in the day. Oh, I, really I know. That. I'm living for that extra hour here in yeah. Pittsburgh. <laughs> As far as a kid, you're like, oh, no, it's the worst, you know, because you always lose an hour before going to school. But now as an adult, you're like, yes, I love it. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree. So today on the podcast, uh, we're here to talk about the ins and outs of partnering with strategic buyers. So if you could start off with giving us a little bit about your background and why you're equipped to talk about that. Yeah, sure. So I've been in the um, spirits industry for a little over a decade. I had the pleasure of working with um, individuals, entrepreneurs. Uh, first, it was at Vive Spirits uh, under Courtney and Carter Riam. And I didn't have any spirits experience when I started. I was their controller, but working with them and their startup, and they were one of the, I guess, first uh, in the field of, uh, they came out with an acai spirit, uh, which was more, it was a, from the positioning of healthy living, you know, alcohol. And right at that point, acai berry was very popular. But working with them, they're both Goldman Sachs guys. So they kind of turned me into, you know, the, the disc jockey, uh, disc jockey, sorry, the Excel jockey that I am today and learning really what it takes to grow a brand uh, and how, what it takes and the bandwidth that is needed. Uh, I worked there for four years, and then from there, I had the opportunity to then become a, a VP of finance and operation at Stillhouse, which is really where I got most of you know the experience of what the do's and don'ts of working in the spirits industry. Because I got I joined them uh, right at the beginning, you know, full, you know, all we had was the the can uh, that uh, the, the prototype. Uh, so I, I was became an integral part of building it from the ground up. And really growing it to the uh, you know for over the five years until it was acquired by Bacardi, so there were a lot of um, ups and downs, uh, and, and and a lot of things that uh, you know great learnings. Every experience is learning, and uh, and then from there, you know it was really great experience and seeing it grow to where it was, and then the acquisition, the transition period from Bacardi taking on as an investment partner, and then finally taking it uh, you know into their wheelhouse. And I was there for the, I was the last man standing. So uh, it was, it was quite a great experience. Nice. Now remind me, who did Vive sell to? Were they both Bacardi? Or no. So, so I believe uh, Bacardi was an investor in Vive, but they got sold to Luxco. 
Uh, and, uh, yeah. And, um, but I knew Bacardi was a partner and then, you know, most of the larger portfolios are there. I don't know if that's just coincidence, uh, you know, being into with two brands that Bacardi's a partner of. Nice. Yeah. So now that means Vive is part of the larger MGPI universe now. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And they, you know, their, their positioning, I mean, their, it was, uh, their branding was not a vodka, uh, you know, better, you know, a better way to drink because there is technically a spirit. Uh, so, you know, the struggle they got with not being in the vodka aisle, but, uh, they, they really got a great opportunity to great, that's great, good drinks, uh, on premise was a big part of their, uh, their success. Yeah. Okay, so so we're already sort of getting there, but let's really dive into it. This is, you know, M&A trends and who's buying what is one of my favorite topics. Um, so I have plenty of questions for you on this one. But I was hoping that you would start off by setting the stage and sort of breaking down the different types of investments we're seeing in spirits these days. <laughs> So there's the three main forms of uh, investment are equity, straight equity, where you you that the brand is then valued at a certain valuation, you insert some kind of comp, or you know you have your standard DCF, you know uh, uh, you know valuation methods. Uh, the other form is preferred uh, preferred stock or convertible um, equity, where it's in the, the investment comes in the form of debt, which is then can um, be converted to equity at a later time, which the investment also has a you know first right of refusal on future investments. Uh, they have essentially warrants uh, to be able to invest in the future and convert their equity at a price predetermined. Uh, the the third would be straight debt, but I don't see that a lot in the industry just because brands or startups don't have a lot of assets. They don't have a lot of collateral uh, to you know to uh, pledge against that debt. So you don't really see that a lot. Maybe in straw in bourbon brands, which is uh, what I'm in now, uh, just because bourbon barrels are very hot right now, mm-hmm. they, 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 they increase in value even with angel share over the long term. So there are some companies that will loan against those barrels uh, and you can pledge those assets. Uh, but that in itself takes a lot of cash on hand to purchase. Um, so you, as you said, you've been doing this for a few years, what would you say has changed in the M&A world since you started? What I've seen in the M&A world, uh, you, you're seeing a lot of brands that are getting acquired by, by portfolios have two key attributes. Uh, one is they are in the premium or ultra premium space. Uh, what that means is their SRP or the, the retail price is uh, either between $25 and $40 or above $40. Uh, the reason why that is, is that's the sweet spot. That's where consumers are attracted to. That's where they're buying. So if, 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 they're, if consumers are buying more of those uh, brands in that spot, more money is being you know, captured there. So larger uh, you know, portfolios want access, want to capture that, that money that they're losing essentially you know, from the, the lower end brands, the, the value of premium brands, which are anywhere between 25 and lower. Uh, the other key is other, you know, call it attribute is a lot of brands, which is nothing new, but a lot of brands that are being acquired have some type of celebrity aspect to it. Uh, it's very, you know, 
as I said before, it's a crowded space. So brands are doing whatever they can to stand out. And the way to stand out is to, to, you know, partner up with a well-known celebrity, uh, that has, um, uh, that brings a lot of value to the brand that, that, you know, that purchaser or acquire be able to take that relationship and continue it on because they see it as one of the main, main pillars of why that brand is successful. Yeah. But, with you, but with that said, it's just, it's though, it's gotta be the right celebrity. I mean, there's a lot of things, but those are the kind of two ones I see in it. You've seen it with Casamigos, you've seen it with Aviation Gin. Uh, and, and then the others is the, you know, sidebar is the, the bourbon space, which is a lot, you know, if a portfolio doesn't have access to that industry, that is the newest, hottest, uh, want to call it, uh, you know, space or uh, category that people want access to. Yeah. What's also interesting about that to me is that celebrities are moving beyond just spokesperson for alcohol, right? Yeah. That's been happening for decades, but now we're actually getting the celebrities or the talent are the investors themselves and they're embedding it into their lifestyles, which is you know, I, I think probably Casamigos yeah. might have set the tone for that one um, or even, you know, Sean Combs with Ciroc. Um, mm. But that's definitely an evolution that we've seen over the last few years. Exactly. I think Sean, I think Puffy and and um, George Clooney, they, they were the, the first one to call. They set the bar. But you they well, when they did it at that time it was way different. The industry was different. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of celebrity brands, so they were able to. Uh, you know, the consumer wasn't used to uh, purchasing a brand that was had this you know celebrity aspect to it. And but they busted their hump. At least P Diddy did, did because I mean I remember on Twitter I, it wasn't a day gone by that he didn't, he's not pushing it out and he used every resource he had and he really you know he even went to stores and you know thanked them, which is always a key you know really shows the loyalty. He did a lot, and now I think there's something I think that the consumer is getting used to the, a celebrity owned brand, and that's not enough. You can't just say uh, you know the celebrity's part of this. It's, they're kind of numb to it. They want more. They want that experience. That experience. They want that emotional tie. And it's going to take the celebrities that get jump on board of a brand need to do everything they can make and having them invest as well. You know, you want a, you want a good partner. You don't just want uh, you know a celebrity person who just treats that as a piggy bank. And I've seen that before. You want someone who has invested their own money, who have skin in the game, because that's really something that they're going to experience. You know, really put all their uh, effort and energy into to really see it through to the very end. I mean, it, you know, uh, taking uh, Ryan Reynolds, for example, you know, he, he, he did a great job. He worked very hard and he's, and because of the deal structure, he's not done. Although he sold, he's on for the next five, you know, six years with an earnout. And he did, you know, he posted something funny. He didn't know, you know, when they, when they purchased the gen, he didn't know that he was still on the clock after that. But because that brand's success is owed to him and they, and for that to continue the success, he needs to continue that drive, you know, whatever he's doing every day. It's not a sit back and just, you know, and uh, just think that it's just going to grow on its own. Um, there's going to be another category, another brand that's going to come and try to steal a space. You always got to be in the, the forefront, always on the mind of the consumer, standing out, uh, doing really fun stuff. Uh, really creative experience uh, to create the experience for the consumer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when you and I were planning for this conversation, um, you mentioned that you think that there are stages before an acquisition. Can you give me a little bit more insight on what you mean by that? 
the, you know, understanding and building your brand and getting into a stage where you feel that you're ready to take on a choir in itself is, is one stage because, you know, there are a lot of other brands out there and you need to understand where you fit amongst your comp set and everybody else. And knowing, you know, who, even if there are five portfolios, you know, you need to understand where, who, who's going to be the most attractive to you and who's going to be, who, what portfolio are you going to be the most attractive to? Because they may already have, let's say a bourbon, you know, in the, you know, let's say they have a portfolio that has five bourbons. Well, they may have a bourbon that's under 15 bucks, uh, bourbon between, you know, premium brand and a high end premium, but they're missing the super premium. So that stage of planning and seeing where how you fit into the ecosystem of other um, you know alcohol um, competitors is really important. Uh, that would you know and I want to I talked a lot about there, but that I would call you know stage you know one and stage two is after that first investment. There is the okay, we took on investment. We have we have we have to hit a certain volume number to be successful. Well, that. You know, it's very important that, you know, you figure out how you do that because the last thing you want to do is go back to your investors and ask for more money. Managing the cash, how much money are you spending on marketing? How, what is your positioning statement? Knowing what you could do in that time period to when you need that next investment and hitting whatever goal that you're going to set in itself is hiring, you know, involving hire good people, making sure that you're not, that you're, you know, you're not just spending, you know, ridiculous amount of money on marketing and then realizing that uh, it's not really turning into volume as the worst. You know, what is your CAC, uh, your you know, LTV to CAC uh, ratio, which is uh, the lifetime value of a consumer to the, the acquisition cost of that consumer, you know, having that positive ratio, understanding, you know, the nuances of, you know, what is, what are your pillars? What are your, I want to say unfair uh, advantage um, across your, you know, amongst your competitors and honing in on that and focusing on that only is really important. Um, that, you know, that, that mid stage is where you start really kind of sharpening your skills of what, you know, what, what you're good at and what you're not. And then the next, the last stage is really preparing or understanding, well, when can we expect an exit an acquisition if you have investment partners and you're taking on more investment as you go, you know, I don't see more any brands getting acquired until they hit about a fifty thousand cases in nine liter volume, uh, which is a size where I think an acquirer will decide to purchase you. Because to take a step back, large portfolios don't make money on, on creativity. They don't start the brands. They need us. We need them. They tried. Uh, to do it in house because they're like, okay, we have all these brands we sell. The the, the retailer doesn't doesn't want to, you know, they want to share the wealth. They they don't do well at creating new brands. They make money on economies of scale. So you need to get that stage of getting your company size to a size for them to make money. So because they make money on economies of scale is what they're interested in. The the last stage is I call it preparing for acquisition. You most deals we've seen or having in them uh, of all the recent deals have an earnout attached to it, and the reason that is is that that earnout deal is takes the risk off of the acquirer and puts it onto the the startup or the brand that they purchase. And the reason is that you're gonna you know if I'm selling my brand, I'm gonna ask for the most money I possibly get, right? But if they don't think that that value is um, 
you know, is a little overestimated, they'll, they'll put an earn out over the next five years and they'll pay you, let's say 70% of the value that you wanted. And if they, and if you, and if, and then over the next five years, if you reach a certain goal, they'll pay you that remainder out. So you need to make sure there are things that you're setting up internally so that the transition period of when you get acquired seamlessly transfer to them if it's whoever they're hiring or the brand so they don't uh, mess it up because they're, they're a big, big brand they not only they have they're trying to run your brand they're running their other more successful brands so it's almost like you need to, they need you need an advocate uh, in-house to make sure that, that no one's dropping the ball especially relates to production uh, you know uh, just normal day-to-day businesses because they have a they have a structure. Uh, they have a system in place. There's, you cannot guarantee that your how you structured your company is going to fit perfectly within that. You have to share information. You have to teach them. You have to you have to be an advocate for what your need, the brand's needs are. Where do you you know where do you get all your uh, working capital? Or uh, sorry, you pr- pr- uh, you purchase your goods. Uh, if you're not helping them, not you know understand the new nuances your businesses that's going to be impediment of the you know you hitting that earn out hitting that large uh, value at that end of those five years so do you think um an earn out clause is pretty standard in most acquisitions for wine and spirits right now yes i do i don't think uh choirs are willing to take on the risk i i, I you know even I, even casamigos had an earn out uh, I I just don't you know it's there's so much uncertainty in the world, especially related to uh, spirits. Uh, I don't think any brand is going to want to pay you that full value because that's they're inheriting all that risk. And if your you know your staff or the the pillars or the what makes your brand successful, they want to keep you on over that five year period because they know that that, that you're going to be that advocate for that brand and it's going to see you're going to see it to success. So they want they want that and. You know, I just don't see it happening any other way. They're going to want you to prove yourself, prove that you're actually worth the value that you say you are. Okay, so my next one might be a little bit of a loaded question, um, but can you talk about who the major strategics are? Um, at least let's let's narrow it down and say if you're a U.S. brand and you're looking for a buyer, who are the major strategics? So uh, the major strategics is Pernod Ricard. Uh, Diageo, um, uh, Moet Hennessy, um, uh, Sazerac, but you know more Brown Foreman. Um, those are and Bacardi. Those are the main uh, players in the field. Uh, the ones that you mostly see, you know, like Bacardi purchased Bertrand. Uh, you know, um, uh, Pernod Ricard um, uh, purchased, and uh, who did they just purchase recently? Um, sorry, I'm drawing a blank. I can't remember their um, most recent. They, recent I mean, they have versus, one probably um, every four months. I feel like these days. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, and I, and you think about it, they are, you know, it's not just one investment. I mean, they are investing in 10 brands. And mm-hmm. as we talked about, they don't know which one is going to be the, the winner. And it's, it's similar to like a slate fund in the movie industry. They do 10 movies and one will pay for the rest of them. And that's how the same kind of, you know, that's the way they hedge your risk. Uh, and um, they, you know, most of these, most of them have um, 
third-party, call it VC firms or uh, you know capital investment groups that that they partner with uh, that help them do, do do all the due diligence and help those brands grow. Bacardi, I believe, is the only one that does it in-house. But you know that I feel you know I can't say one way or another is right, uh, but they know that it's going to take some babying uh, to make sure that brand is successful before it's really, you know, really something that's really driving a lot of value for the company because, you know, these, these brands that they currently have that are successful are the biggest brands in the world. So it's going to be able to take a long while before your brand is going to start being meaningful to their bottom line. So, uh, you know, so if you're in the industry, you're going to get, you know, you're going to start learning and meeting the same people. There's only so many individuals that are like in that, VC, you know, representation of these brands, um, you know, there, you know, there's only a few and you kind of start learning the network. And the good thing is you should always be in contact with them. Keep the, the relationship open. You always want to keep them, you know, in the know, uh, always tell them how you, well you're doing, uh, because you know, they may, they may realize that, wow, this, this, your brand is growing really fast and, or you have a category that we don't have. I mean, bourbon right now, you is right now the where I'm seeing most of the M&A dollars are going because there were these gaps in their portfolios they were missing. Uh, they, they didn't have a distillery, a bourbon distillery. They know that in Kentucky, these distilleries is the napification. You know, it's, it's creating the, the tourism is really important. That's a, that's, that, that's drives the, the, uh, the success of a brand. They want access to that. So, uh, you know, we, you know, you're going to, you know, if you have something they want, you're going to be contacted by them. Sure. Okay. So, so why don't we move into, so we just discussed who the strategics are. So then we'll turn the tables and talk about, you know, um, the brands that they're looking for and what makes those brands attractive. I think that's a natural segue, right? Yeah. 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 So, um, so the, so we can talk about the attributes from the strategic, what our new brand is looking for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, what we can do, like, why does it matter? I think we start to, on uh, number B, if that, um, there we if go. that, because we did touch on, yeah. So, uh, going back to understanding, you know, bef- let's just say you want to start a spirits brand. Let's just like, okay, <laughs> you, let's say you have money. Okay, great. You have $10 million. All right. Well, what, do, what, what kind of spirits brand do you want to create? First, you have to understand is, okay, well, there's, there, you know, what space or category do you want to be in? Is it bourbon? Is it vodka? Um, do you know, is it uh, gin? Is it, uh, you know, just basic American whiskey? Uh, you know, understanding, you know, what's hot in every, you know, just like uh, clothing, you know, categories have their, you know, are popular for 10 years and they're not. Uh, bourbon is right now is in a five year, you know, in a, the fifth year of a 20 year trend. So bourbon's hot right now. Gin is starting to become popular. Vodka is suffering more than it used to. Uh, but you know, Tito's is still behemoth. So you want to understand is, okay, well, what, what category do you think, you know, either is you want to go after what's popular now, or do you want to be a contrarian, go and build a brand that you anticipate that category is going to be popular in the future. Right. Okay, well, let's say you pick bourbon because just because I, I I'm in the bourbon space, so I know that. Um, as I discussed before, uh, portfolios want uh, are searching for high end premium and super premium. 
uh, anything above 25 bucks. And the reason is consumers want are buying more of those. And so what, and because of that, they want to look for brands and purchase brands that raise their average retail price of all their brands because they know that's only going to create more value for them. So they want, so, you know, when you're thinking about it in the spectrum of, uh, you know, the, the volume price uh, chart, you know, are you, you know, are you in the bottom right category, which is high volume, uh, low margin, which is the Walmart kind of model, or are you the high margin, low volume, which is the Rolls Royce? Where do you fit in, you know, the spectrum of, you know, pricing? Because you don't want to get stuck in the middle because you'll get killed because that's the Macy's. You know, you want, you need to identify where in that category you want to fit. And then from there, okay, if you, if you know they're looking for anything above 25, well, taking, Mentioning these other, you know, the, the, the top five large portfolios, understanding, looking at their portfolio, where, what are they missing? You know, what, who, who don't they have? You know, it's like an all-star team, a sports team, you know, who, where are they lacking? You know, even if they have bourbon, do they have a super premium or do they have a high end premium? You know, trying before you start your brand, you want to understand is, you know, who, you know, what, why am I, if you're going to start this, this price category, who's going to be want this because I, you're fitting, you're, you're filling a need that they have. So knowing, you know, knowing that and understanding what the, the, the environment is will help you guide you where you want to fit. And then from there, you know, understanding that if that is what consumers want, what acquirers want, that will guide you from setting, from starting your SRP and working way down and help you build out your entire model. Um, I was going to say, okay, so from a, from a brand portfolio perspective, let's say, um, you know, you fit in your, uh, a desirable target. What about from a back office perspective, right? Um, uh, you know, the ability to scale, for example, um, what are, what are they looking for there? So, you know, if you're buying a bottle, right, you know, again, if you know that they make money as economy scale, so you want to, you know, every decision you make, you can't think of today, you have to think five years down the road. You have to understand that, okay, if you're buying a bottle, is it custom or not? Are you buying stock? And knowing that there are price breaks involved so that over as your volume grows, or if they take over the brand, that they're you're going to see cost efficiencies be earned because that is what that's so important. Because you know you don't want to just keep continuing paying the same price for every item, you know, and you want to see that as you grow, you're going to start saving money because you're getting these price breaks with your um, you know with your uh, dry goods or wet goods, whatever you're buying. That's very important, important, and. Um, that's going to be important for them because that, you know, that's when we talk about synergies of how they're going to make costs. You want, they want to see that they are able to, you know, to save money and make those costs efficiently run through the P&L. So you always want to consider not create, buy something that is impossible to make or it's in China and it's, you know, it takes six months to get to the, to the U S uh, is very expensive. That's not a winning strategy. That's not a winning formula for your brand. Um, back office side, and I want to talk about what relates to marketing. Um, there's something, you know, when you think about your company's value, there are the standard metrics, DCF, there is, you know, cash flow, but one of the most, you know, sale, you know, um, um, you know, multiple of sales, you know, all okay, fine, standard. 
but there's something called um, CAMP or, or uh, how do you want it? Or uh, it stands for contribution after marketing and promotion. It's really important because whatever the, that metric, understanding what your CAMP is, that's the multiple. It's a very popular multiple that you need to always keep an eye out for because that multiple is going to be used for your value. And the reason I say that is whatever you're spending on marketing, whatever, what efficiencies you're doing, that is the same amount of money that anybody who your acquire is going to be spending to keep the brand uh, afloat, to keep the brand, uh, the same brand awareness for how they're going to run it. So Anything below that, essentially GNA staff, they're going to wipe clean. They're going to absorb. They're not going to keep. So it's really important that the marketing that that you don't overspend or you have a some stable marketing dollars that you're spending that is going to be needed um, to keep the brand afloat. Because if you overspend on marketing, that's going to hurt you when you <clears throat> take on <clears throat> either early early uh, investors or long term investors because. They're going to look at that and say, well, you're spending $4 million per year in marketing. Well, $4 million, that tells me that, that we have to spend $4 million to keep the brand uh, you know, in the front of consumers' mind. But so you need to understand that if that's just the beginning value, you want to make, know that that's going to hurt you when, you know, when you're trying to sell or take an investment because they're going to think that they got to spend that and you're, and you're, you know, you're going to have to argue or convince them that's otherwise. Knowing, you know, that's why spending marketing and other dollars is so important to not let it get out of hand because, you know, you're not going to be able to compete with the big boys and you want to have something in there that, you know, marketing budget that makes sense for that brand that's stable and is not going to be needed to be increased or, you know, that it's, uh, um, that it's, uh, something that, that they won't, that they'll, you want to, you want to make it an amount that, is not too high where it really hurts everything else below the line. And in, in understanding new startup, you're going to have a lot of, you're going to spend a lot in the beginning, but you want to get to a healthy, I want to say about 60% camp is a very healthy uh, margin that you want to reach because, you know, because you're going to get the most value out of that over the long term. So, you know, the understanding of not, you know, spending too much and doing so much crazy because the least amount of money you spend on marketing is only going to pay you off better in you know, dividends over the long term. Oh, yeah. uh, I've seen a lot of brands that spend too much and it, it, it you know, and then it really hurts their value. Longer. Yeah, that's a great point that I don't hear talked about very often. So very interesting. And I think also segues into a great question about are there any common red flags that you see? So from a strategic <clears throat> perspective, are there a few things when you're either looking at the books or talking with the brand that you see as like an immediate turnoff? Yeah. Uh, I, I, one is if you set a, your annual volume and then after three months you change it and after three months you change it again and after three months you change it again, that's, that shows me that you have either, uh, is your team is not good at forecasting or, uh, that you overestimated, uh, your budget. And that's just, that's just poor planning. Uh, the, that in combination with your cash burn, if you, for example, let's say we set a, a 30,000 volume goal for the year. Okay. The year starts after six months. Uh, you are now at, uh, you're behind plan. You're at, you should be at 15,000 cases. You are now at, you're at 10. 
what we what I end up seeing is that, but what you if that happens, then you have to adjust as it relates to camp everything accordingly. You can't let the volume, if the volume is going, it was expected here and you had a, let's say marketing was 50% of that. Well, after six months, if, if volume is behind, you have to adjust all the other expenses behind below. Otherwise, you're going to burn through your cash so much faster. And that shows that your management team doesn't know how to adjust or, or, or plan accordingly because you're going to burn so much more cash. And I've seen it where the volume is going down, but they think we got to spend the same amount of marketing or if more, because that's going to help volume and that, that you can't plan that way. That's poor. That's, 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 that's not a winning, that's not a winning scenario. Uh, and there's nothing worse than going back to your investors and telling them that you need more money because you didn't hit your volume and therefore you didn't hit your volume. You're, 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 but you're still spending on marketing. You have, you know, and you're, you're, and then you also have all the overhead that you have. Um, there's nothing worse than having a, you know, a huge amount of staff that you got to continue to pay, but you're not, uh, you're not hitting your volume. It's, it's, it's a poor pro- uh, proposition for your investors and, and you, it does not look good for you. Uh, one of the things that is important for a brand to do or any company is understand what are your fixed and your variable costs. Fixed costs are fixed costs are expenses that happen every single month. Rent, uh, you know, uh, salaries, uh, you know, nothing. You know, that, that no matter how how you're doing performance wise, it's gonna it's gonna hit your the expenses gonna come in. And there are variable costs. Variable costs are costs that you know, are variable or adjust accordingly to, let's say, volume. So if you pay, let's say, $2 for every case you sell, you know, and if you don't sell, you know, depending on the volume of cases you sell, that will determine your expense. That is a variable cost. That is that is very important for any company, for a brand to understand and to, and to be, um, uh, to employ in their business model because, it will help them manage their cash because if, you know, volume, if, if, if volume's down or, you know, things, to, you know, that you're not doing so well, you won't burn through your cash quicker because you have so many fixed expenses. Uh, it's, it's, it's really important that, you know, you have a nice balance between the two because fixed costs will help you save money because it's fixed and, you know, yeah, you'll probably get, um, you know, it, you'll, you'll make more money as long as you're successful, but in variable, typically more expensive, but, if you're not successful and you're behind plan, you're going to burn some so much more cash faster than if you just went with a variable rate. And then over the long term, you can kind of then start when you have more stable, um, you know, stable volume or stable demand, you'll be able to switch those over uh, to fix at a certain point. Um, those are the type of things that I want to see uh, in a, on a, on a p and on a balance sheet uh, because, you know, it just, it, it, if they, if it's a lot of fixed costs, not bearable, you're going to see a lot, uh, there's a lot of risk there and that's, uh, and things go wrong. You can't just plan for the best. There's always, you always have to plan in worst, best and best case scenarios. It's very important that you plan all the time and always looking at the data and, and, and it's okay to adjust. No one's expecting you to be, you know, uh, to hit the, hit it on the nail on the head every single time. They understand there are, there, there are, um, you know, nuances, things in the market that go wrong and that's okay. They just want to see that you take responsibility and you adjust accordingly. I would say that on, you know, when, let's say you have a proof of concept and you have it and, and, and you know your SRP and then you build your pricing model. Okay. So you have your margin. Uh, it's, it's very important for, on a forecasting basis to really understand, um, you know, 
having a good either team or you're yourself that do it and really put build a bottom up plan at, you know starting if you go from the i always use a tool is well, where do we start with building our forecasting and our you know our, our model it's so easy state start with the PL and work your way down so go from the top to the bottom okay what's the top that's volume okay how do you build volume i see so many times where you know you see a volume put in there and it was just like take licking your finger stick in the air and you're like oh let's uh, let's shoot for 50 percent or uh you know the vodka market's uh you know 100 million cases and we're going to be two percent of that. that's not a plan that doesn't do anything for anybody um saying that you're just going to sell this many cases in each market it, it really it, to have a, a accurate and a well-designed plan, and it's only going to help you in the long run, is to build it from the bottom up from a volume standpoint. What I mean by bottom up, you know, start with depletions by market. If let's say you're opening five markets and you start it with bottom up plan between on and off premise, independent and chain, uh, independent and chain. And as I know it's granular, but understanding what each account and each account type is going to order real on a reorder basis and what their annual volume is going to be each year, that is going to be very crucial because that's how you're going to measure your sales staff. That's how you're going to measure the KPIs. That's how you're going to look at performance views and see how they're doing against those metrics because depletions drive shipments. Don't focus so much on shipments, even though it drives revenue. Focus on the depletions and what those need to be to hit your shipment number. Because it's a t- the difference between depletions and shipments is purely timing. You may have hit your depletion numbers, but you're off 20% on your revenue numbers. It doesn't matter. It's gonna, that's a timing. It's going to come back in you know, January, the first quarter of next year, because it's just they'll put the reorder rate in. So it's very important that you do a bottom-up plan by account type, by market, and roll that all the way up to then depletions for the market as a whole. And then from there, you can estimate, and this is a good, I basically put in 45 days of inventory from what's the, that the distributor want to keep on hand. What that means is that they have 45 days of inventory on hand and that's based off of the daily depletion rate. So let's just say you sell a case a day. That means they should have 45 cases on hand at all times. That will help determine then what your shipment number is going to be because, you know, because it will just be a function of, okay, if the depletions are, let's say, a thousand cases a year in this market, well, then. You know, and if and if forty five days, uh, I mean, that's actually math doesn't make sense. But then just tack on that daily depletion rate, whatever that is, times forty five days. That's your ship number, and you do that for you roll that up from your plan all the way down for every market. That that's a plan. That's what I like to see. Then you see how you do. You know, every three months and then six month reviews to see how you're doing on a depletion basis. Your sales staff. Do not, I don't recommend you, you build their bonus from their KPIs, tax the shipments because that's not their responsibility. They have no control over that. They have control over depletions. So those are the KPIs. Those are the, how you should manage them. And then you can worry about depletions. I mean, uh, shipments, uh, uh, you know, to make sure that they come in and make sure inventory is stable. That's that, that right there is, you know, number one key to start, you know, how you build your model. And then from there you figure out, what you then build out your PL by market. And that PL will then tell you what you should be spending on a marketing basis. Because some markets have larger volume, but if at the end of the day, if they bring in more cash, you're able to spend more money in that market. And it's probably going to take more cash. And you basically build this kind of 
you know, individual P&L starting from volume for every market, and then you total them up at the end. And then you measure each market and performance, how you do it from there. I, I think that, 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 that will really help you, uh, your, your team and the rest of your company plan and, and hit goals. Oh, this is such good information, Jared. Thank you. I'm already, before this conversation is over, I'm already daydreaming about the different ways that we can like distribute these little points of advice. So I, I think people are really going to like this and probably have a lot of follow-up questions. So <laughs> um, I would say, you know, tell the people where they can find more you know, information about you or what you do. Um, sidebar, do you take consulting or are you strictly Sweetens Cove? Uh, right now I'm strictly okay. Sweetens Cove. I'm a, um, an employee, but um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can just search my name. Um, I'm happy to help anybody. Uh, I know a lot about this and it, everybody's situation is different. So uh, I only can, you know, I've learned a lot and I, I, you know, if I can help you and help you in any stage, if it's valuations, uh, modeling, where to start, uh, understanding comp sets, um, even staffing. Um, a big believer is work as hard as you can and get in until your bandwidth is completely drained up. That's when you should take on, you know, more people. Uh, I've seen it all. Um, and, um, I also can help with, you know, thinking, uh, you through thinking through, uh, you know, what are the main or permanent employees that you need to start with? You know, is it a creative designer? Is it sales staff? Uh, do you hire those third-party agencies? You know, it really depends uh, on what you're looking for. I'd be happy to help. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Jared, for joining me today. And I'm really excited to see how this turns out. Hi, everyone. It's Emily again. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're enjoying the Park Street Insider podcast, don't forget to rate us and leave a good review. If you're interested in getting involved in Park Street University, email us at psu at parkstreet.com. Thanks a lot.